0: an apartment-sized piece of ice fell down on the trail and so there was like 300 feet of the trail that was no longer passable and that's what happened when we heard that hey y'all i'm ryan
1: devlin and welcome to the struggle climbing show where i talk with elite climbers about their struggles and breakthroughs in training nutrition tactics and mental game and also what they're psyched on beyond the fight with gravity Now, today we're chalking up for a chat with an impressive all-arounder and also an all-around impressive guy, Eddie Taylor. I mean, Eddie pretty much does it all, you guys. Boulder, sport, big wall, ice, alpine. He is stoked, he's driven, and he is incredibly fit on vertical terrain. Now, just a few highlights. Eddie's Freed Moonlight Buttress, the notoriously challenging grade 5 12D multi-pitch in Zion. He's done the nose of El Cap in a day, along with other big routes in the valley. And lately, he's been spotted linking up heinously long bike rides with fast and light multi-pitch climbing with his friend and recent guest to the pod, Nina Williams. Oh, and he also summited Mount Everest. So there's that. Now, many of Eddie's climbing accomplishments could come with the label of first black climber to do XYZ, but Eddie doesn't really have much interest in pushing that narrative. He's all about access and inclusivity for sure, but he's also just all about the climbing, and his family, and his job, because you know what, Eddie's accomplished all of this while holding down a full-time job as a high school chemistry teacher, and coaching track and field, and being a husband, and being a father. So if, like me, you've got a family and a job and a passion for climbing, it doesn't get much more motivating than this. Eddie shows that we are all capable of greatness if we just set our minds and our hearts to it. So one of the things that I'm most impressed with in Eddie as a climber is just the amount of sheer volume that he can handle. He's just got that big wall endurance, but he also takes that to his everyday training as he runs laps on local multi-pitch routes in Boulder, which you're going to hear more about in this interview. Now, I am way off from that level of fitness, but I'm working hard to build that energy system up right now as I try to get fit for the fall here at The Red. And one of the hacks that I'm using to help me get there is Sendurex by Fizzy Vantage. You all know that Fizzy Vantage is the official climbing nutrition sponsor of The Struggle, and man am I glad that they are, because I've been hitting the treadwall lately. And before I start that session, I prep my system with syndurex which I shake up in some cold water on my way to the gym, and that has been shown to boost power, endurance, stamina, and recovery between repeated efforts. It's NSF certified for sport, it contains no sugar, no caffeine, and it is packed with proven performance enhancers like beetroot extract and citrulline malate. If you want to log more mileage in the gym or out on your projects this season, whether you're bouldering or big walling i definitely recommend chugging down some sendurex during your warm-up so just hit that link in your show notes there or pop by fizzyvantage.com and use code struggle 15 to get 15 percent off your order try it feel the difference you're gonna love it And this episode is also sponsored by the Kaya Climb app. And if you enjoy bouldering outdoors, this is the absolute best resource to add to your kit, I'm telling you. They're working with local experts to create digital guidebooks for more than 50 bouldering areas, like Bishop, Red Rock, Joe's, Squamish, Leavenworth, Rocky Mountain, and more being added all the time. I think they just added one as I was saying this. It is all right there on your phone with GPS-pinned boulders, beautiful photos, and accurate directions even when you don't have a signal. No more wandering around the woods wondering where that five-star rig is. Plus, guys, my favorite feature, over 300,000 community-uploaded beta videos for when you get shut down on the proj. No searching mountain project, no searching YouTube, it's just right there in one beautiful place. And they're partnered up with Access Fund to help protect the areas that we all love to climb. Hit that link in your show notes to download a free version of Kaya and try it out right now. And then also, there's a link there to get 20% off the pro version, which has even more badass features. It's like five bucks a month. Check it out. I love what Kaya's doing. And lastly, just a big thanks to all you patrons and subscribers out there. I've seen so many of you joining up recently. It's friggin' rad. It's like exploding my heart. Thank you so much as I'm hustling here in the podcast slash utility closet to put out good content and maybe even make this my full-time job. Oh my gosh. Can you imagine it? So if you are a patron or subscriber, this episode is ad-free and extended for you. Awesome. Listen up for that bonus content at the very end. And if you're not a patron or subscriber, I'll tell you more about it at the end. Thank you so much. I love you. All right, let's get ready to log some serious mileage with Eddie Taylor. I was just out at the River Gorge yesterday. It was 95 degrees and 90% humidity, so I got some real sub-maximal climbing in, but you kind of got to take what you can get. This time of year in Kentucky,
0: how are things out in Colorado right now? It's hot. It's just hot. <laughs> yeah. Summer is always hot, and it's like worse than it's ever been, but it is what it is.
1: But even like, are you getting into the high altitude at all, or is it just like you right now, you're teaching, so you're kind of yeah. stuck at the lower elevations?
0: Yeah. I mean, personally, I, just have, I, I haven't alpine climbed at all this season. I mean, I went to Elephant's Perch a couple of weeks ago in Idaho, so I guess that's alpine climbing, but just with the baby and stuff, logistics have been... It's been climbing in 95 here.
1: <laughs> exactly. That's with me, man. You Take what you can get. I got a kid in kindergarten, a kid in third grade. And so I can't go spend a couple of weeks in Squamish right now. I just got to take Red River Gorge climbing. But, you know, that's what I, I'm excited in a way for this conversation, because you're a real human being who has accomplished really incredible feats of climbing, of adventure, uh, expeditions and you also are a dad and a teacher and uh, you, you can't just live in a van and travel from one incredible destination to the next based on the conditions and maybe that's a good place for us to start
0: actually how would you define yourself as a climber Eddie I guess like in generally in general I just like climbing something where you get to the bottom and you get to the top of something if it's like a peak or if it's like a big rock formation it's for climbing trad climbing ice climbing I don't really care but I- I definitely like long multi-pitch routes. Yeah, it seems like
1: just based on a lot of the projects that you focused on, multi-pitch, big wall seems to be maybe a little bit more where the fire is than compared to maybe sport climbing or bouldering. Is that a fair assessment?
0: Yeah. Not that I don't sport climb and boulder a lot, but that's not what gets me up in the morning for sure. I
1: love that about traditional climbing and multi-pitch climbing is being able to start at the bottom and get to the top. And you've started at the bottom and gotten to the top of some pretty impressive things. I guess we'll, we'll dive into some of this as, as we get into some of the future chapters here. So let's just zoom out for a second and talk about struggle and through the lens of climbing, what your relationship is with struggle and, and how you view struggle as a rock climber.
0: I feel like I should have practiced this question because I knew you were going to ask it, but... (laughs) (laughs) It's the Um, only
1: question everybody knows is coming, but that's all right because we can
0: talk through it right now because I feel like you've probably taken on quite a bit of self-inflicted struggle. I think it's hard when it comes to climbing. I just don't see climbing as that much of a struggle. It's kind of like everything outside of climbing is like where the struggle is, you know? like I mean, I'm here working with 165 kids who all have different problems that they're dealing with every single day. I mean, we all have problems in like our, you know, maintaining and creating new relationships, jobs, work, all of these other things. And I mean, climbing's kind of where I ideally, obviously it doesn't always happen for multiple reasons. But like ideally, I'm going there to like not think about anything but spending time with people, seeing like really cool environments. And the only thing you can really think about is being as scared of falling or failure. And that's not it not that it's not a struggle. It's just like, so the struggle of climbing is so minuscule compared to all the other things that you have going on. And that's kind of why I like climbing, if that makes sense. Absolutely, man. I I appreciate the perspective. It's a really refreshing
1: perspective. And I think, again, relatable for a lot of the people who are listening right now, but it can, because I care about climbing and I care about the outcome, it can become a little bit more real, that struggle there. And Do you experience that when you really set your mind and your heart on an objective?
0: Like, yeah, climbing's hard when you're projecting something, you're falling off over and over again. Yeah, it's hard and it's tough, but but at the end of the day, that's like the thing that I'm doing for fun and joy. And it's an outlet, right? Like I don't have to worry about my boss and I don't have to worry about like all these responsibilities I have. And so, yeah, it's really just a perspective that I have on it, which has made climbing so fun and something that I continue and continuously do.
1: Yeah, man. It's great. Well, I can see the joy in your face just as we're talking right here, but also having talked with people that you've spent quite a bit of time with, James Lucas and Nina Williams were recently on the show. And the, the the joy of your experience with climbing, I think is pretty infectious. I'm excited to explore that as we dive into some of these chapters, which we can do right now. So let's talk about training. How do you think about training when it comes to climbing and is there an area in particular that you tend to struggle with regards to training?
0: guess I would say in general, I struggle with training for climbing. Yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. Like I like to pick a lot of big goals and a lot of times those goals might be outside of my skill set and I have to work towards them. But it's really hard for me to just sit there and train. I ran track in college and that was something that I was really into. I spent a lot of time doing. I was training 40 hours a week for that, like in the weight room four days a week. I was the strongest I had ever been. And I trained a lot. And honestly, I got burnt out of that super formal training only to compete, you know, every couple months. I I did the decathlon. So we did two decathlons a year, maybe three. And so I trained super hard for that. And I kind of just honestly started getting injured and got really burnt out from that super formal training. And with climbing, like, again, I talked about big multi pitches are the things I really enjoy doing. And so to be better at that, to be able to do that, you have to be able to do the crux pitches. So you have to be able to sport climb. And so I'll go sport climbing when I only have a few hours of time to go climbing, or I'll go to the gym when I don't have a partner or I don't have the time to go all the way to Eldo. And so I really kind of see those other facets of climbing as like training for like the longer routes and the objectives I pick. And I try to be really consistent. I mean, I climb five days a week, six days a week, and I'm outside most of those days. So like Not necessarily I'm in there hangboarding and although I've been trying to, I keep trying to start and then I keep falling off, but like, I guess a lot of my training is by just doing other types of climbing. Can you give me an example of a big wall or, you know, a multi-pitch objective that, that
1: you had aspired to that required some more specialized training, whether it was sport climbing or something in the gym so that you could unlock
0: the route? And I kind of got this like when I initially started climbing, one of my first focuses was I wanted to climb the diamond. It's in Colorado, the easiest route up, it's 510. And I had just started climbing, I was climbing in the gym, I was going sport climbing nearby and everyone was like, oh, you have to be like a true alpinist and you have to climb, have been climbing for so long to climb the diamond. And so at that time, like I couldn't climb 510. And so I was going to Boulder Canyon and El Dorado Canyon and the different places like Working on my abilities, trying different five tens and even five elevens because I thought I had to climb a little bit harder yeah. at the time on sport to be able to climb, try to climb a certain grade. And so I was doing that, working my way up. But I, I don't really have a specific route. But it was just putting that time and that energy into learning how to move on on granite that was safer than granite where you can't breathe and you can't you don't have bolts to clip.
1: Yeah. So I mean, it's very uh, it was very practical.
0: Yeah. You mentioned that you're climbing
1: five or six days a week. And a lot of that, I think, you you try to get
0: outside. How hard are you pushing when you're going out? So, in general, I rarely climb at my limit or like project at my limit. Like right now, it's maybe once or twice a week. And I honestly just have a hard time enjoying that type of climbing. And so, like, I'm climbing five or six days a week, but I climb the same routes over and over again. Like, I go to El Dorado Canyon. Usually we're speed climbing, we'll climb like the Naked Edge or something, which is a six pitch 5.11 route. And I can do something like that because I know it, like I'm less scared when I'm out there climbing. And also I can do it in an hour and a half before work, where if I'm going, if I'm going sport climbing, it's going to take me rest between goes. Like this project I'm working right now, like I have to drive up to Boulder Canyon, which is a little bit further from my house. You know, every go I'm taking 40, 45 minutes between, if not longer between goes. And by that time, half my day's eaten up and I'm trying to get home to spend a little bit of time with my daughter before she goes to bed. So it's like some types of climbing I can do so much more efficiently and get a lot out of it. Not just physically fitness or physical fitness, but more of like, I enjoy it. And I learn a little bit every time I'm like, I climb these routes over and over again, but I also still learn, like I'm learning, okay, I can do this move more efficiently. I can use less energy here. If I'm feeling stronger, I can actually skip these two moves and it's just faster. So it's kind of like a different kind of climbing than just pure like limit strength climbing. But it's also something that I get sucked into doing way more than I probably should. Well,
1: I love this though as a perspective because I'm I so often speak with climbers on this show, but also I've just in this chapter of my life taken on this main objective of trying to push my top end climbing grade my sport grade and that's kind of the season that i'm in going to the red river gorge i haven't been Mm -hmm. able to get out and do bigger multi-pitch or big wall stuff which is kind of where my heart is to be perfectly honest but the season that i'm in is i can get psyched on trying to push my red point grade up but it's exciting to me to hear about you going off and you know clicking off six pitches in in 60 to 90 minutes on 511 that's first of all, like a blazing pace because you're not soloing it. Although I I imagine the gear placements are fairly minimal if you know the route that well and you're going speed climbing, but to move over that much stone in a short amount of time to be able to then get to work is really cool. And I'm curious, first of all, I'm sure your endurance system is like highly optimized. Do you then supplement just a little bit here and there for that top end strength or power? Are there things that you're reluctantly doing like on a hangboard in between classes at school? Or how do you look at training up the energy system that you're maybe neglecting a little bit in doing so much volume?
0: So that's the part that I'm still working on getting better at, to be honest. Like every couple months, I'm like, oh, I, I have to, I should probably try to climb another 513 or should probably do this. And like, I like reluctantly go sport climbing and it, it is fun. Like, it's definitely fun. Like, it's not like I'm like someone's forcing me to go sport climbing, but it's always like I could rather I'd rather go climb in the mountains or go do something where you can get so much more climbing in versus like I literally was joking around last Saturday. Like I can climb the naked edge pretty quickly. That's a, Like I said, the route in Eldo. Or I can go climb this 15 meter sport route. And I was hanging at all the moves trying to work out the beta And it definitely took us twice as long as my personal record on the naked edge, which is like kind of, when you think about it, you're like, man, I could be climbing so much more, but I'm just trying to learn this like six inch sequence. And so it's really hard for me when that time is so limited. So a lot of it, it does come down to time constraints. And like, I do though, like when I only have an hour to go, I'm going to just go to the gym and I'm going to usually... In the gym, I don't sport climb in the gym because I feel like if I have to go to the gym, I can get more bang for my buck climbing on the boulders or even I've been recently spending more time trying to climb on that moon board or the tension board because I just feel like I so much more time efficient to get on one of those boards versus to go sport climb and have to try to find a partner and have to line up times and then you start chatting and I don't know. That's I kind of compartmentalize the training so small. That's what it looks like for me.
1: Let's talk about nutrition now, Eddie, and how do you look at nutrition as a way to support your climbing? And is there an area of struggle for you when it comes to nutrition and climbing? I'm
0: going to go back to my track career in college. Basically, our nutrition in college was, right, eat healthy and gain as much weight as possible because I threw things, I jumped, I needed to be very powerful. And so when I quit track and field or when I graduated, uh, I finished track and field. I haven't really had to worry about nutrition. Basically, I've since I started climbing, since I've been doing these more endurancey things, I've just gotten smaller and smaller as the years have went by. <laughs> Mainly because I was like, you know, in college, I was eating six, seven thousand calories a day. Oh my god, to try to fuel myself to continue to, you know, do everything that we were doing in terms of it, the decathlon. So yeah, I really haven't spent a lot of time worrying or thinking about nutrition. Obviously, I do some like very general nutrition coaching with my kids. I don't go into anything in depth for various reasons but like so i'm familiar with nutrition i'm familiar with the science behind it but also like personally i just eat when i'm hungry and when i'm not hungry i don't really eat very much and like when i'm out climbing all day like my wife gets mad at me but i literally just forget to eat lunch and then (laughs) it's just part of the day where it's like oh yeah i have to be reminded like oh yeah okay i should eat lunch i need to fuel myself but in terms of nutrition, like I hasn't been a huge role in my climbing career. Let's look at some maybe specific climbs that you've done,
1: or at least some styles of climbs. And we've already highlighted that you love these big wall climbs. You like expeditions. You like to be out in, I think, exciting, interesting, maybe sometimes remote areas. And if you are so psyched that you're not really focusing on eating. And I've been there. I think we can all just like we get in the flow and all of a sudden, you know, we haven't thought about anything for hours. There's certainly the risk of bonking if you're going to be on a big wall. Everest is maybe its it's, its own separate beast and you could speak to that as well. But how do you look at fueling when you're on these all day, 12 hour,
0: 15 hour type objectives? Yeah, I've gotten into that issue a couple of times where I just... I don't bring food for various reasons. It's heavy or whatnot. (laughs) I I have definitely bumped, but that's usually when things don't go as planned. I mean, basically, I just bring bars and snacks and fruit snacks. Like, I don't necessarily get, like, super specialized. Basically, I always call it science food, right? Like, I'm not usually climbing with goose and those type of things. But just kind of the basics. And I just try to eat consistently, especially at big changeovers and belays. And it seemed to work. And to be honest, usually I end up bringing, especially in the last couple of years, I end up bringing way too much. And so I'm always walking down with like, you know, still two or three bars in my pocket because I've been so used to going very minimally. But like I said, if things don't go as planned, that's when like not eating really like beats me down.
1: Yeah. Like, has there been a scenario where you've epic or, or just like really, you know, hit some crazy snags and delays on, on
0: wall and not had the provisions that you needed? Yes. (laughs) I brought up the diamond earlier, but I was climbing the diamond like three days before this, I had climbed it in like the fastest time I had ever done car to car. And I was really excited. And, and it's like, again, it's one way I measure success is by like how fast and how efficiently I could do things. And so, I was going back up with another partner who actually is a much stronger sport climber than me, like a much stronger sport climber than me and has climbed up there, has climbed in the mountains. And I was like, all right, so I just had this really good, successful day. I'm really psyched. I think I can do this. We talked about gear, went a little bit lighter with food and everything. And what was a five and a half hour day? Two days ago, turned into a 26 hour day. Oh my gosh. So it was like a 26-hour day. I mean, you're doing a pretty big approach. Yeah, you're doing a pretty big approach. I had, I think, three bars at the time, like a pretty light rack and a light rope. And we were doing a different route that was marginally harder. And there were so many things that came into the day. Luckily, we had great weather. But weirdly enough, there were so many more people that we kind of had, right. we had. It wasn't just the climate. It was negotiating the people it was this little mini rescue we had to do with the people before us who didn't want to climb the easiest route on the wall. So they were on the route we were. And as it was getting dark, we had to throw them a rope. So there was all these different things. But basically by the time of, by the time we were repelling, I hadn't eaten for like six, seven hours and six, seven hours ago, that was, I had a, just a bar. The day before I was already done by that. So it wasn't a big deal, but by then it was like, it was getting dark and it wasn't just nutrition. It was like, I didn't bring a hood or a puppy that day. And so it was getting cold and we were still moving. But I mean, all of a sudden you're not thinking it's clear. You're not making the best decisions. You're going slower and it just compounds, like it compounds and compounds. And so, I mean, that's the, that was my big lesson in like why I always should bring a little bit extra. I should always be a little bit more or have a little bit more in the reserve just because you never know what can happen or what conditions can bring. And you know, climbing with different people and how that changes things as well. So I've definitely hit that where the blood sugar has completely crashed and you like, things are almost getting a little blurry. Yeah, I
1: can. Now I understand that it's more often that you're hiking down with a few extra bars in your pockets than not at all. Because if something like that happened to me, I'd probably be hiking down with a few extra bars and a thing of pasta. Yeah. <laughs> All right, y'all, just a quick breather here to shout out one of the sponsors that makes this show available to you at zero cost. And that's also zero cost itself. And that is the Crimped Training app. Now, I've used Crimped for a couple of years now, and I am not exaggerating you guys when I say that it has helped me to level up my climbing in huge ways. My max grade when I downloaded the Crimped app was 11B, and this season I'm working on my first 13A. They just make programming my training so dang easy that I'm working on what I need to work on at any given time in my season and nothing more. Crimpt offers 75 different workouts created by world-class coaches and climbers totally for free. And then you can also sign up for Crimped Plus and that'll give you access to more than 200 workouts and also the ability to create your own training plans, to log all of your stuff and keep track of it along the way. Or you can just choose one of their preloaded templates that are geared towards bouldering or sport climbing, whatever you want to work on, If you're a self-coached climber, I'm telling you, the absolute best and easiest way to discover proven workouts and stay on track is Crimped. Hit that link in your notes or just search Crimped in your app store to download it for free and take your training to new heights. And the official chalk sponsor here at The Struggle is Friction Labs. I love Friction Labs. From Alex Magos to Michaela Kirsch and a million pros, they're all trusting Friction Labs because their performance chalk lasts longer and is free of fillers, rosin, and drying agents. None of that stuff is in there, which means your skin stays in great shape. I use their Secret Stuff Liquid Chalk to go along with my Gorilla Grip. And I'm also really psyched to check out their new Chalk Discs, which they just launched like a few days ago. They're always innovating cool stuff over there. You can try it risk-free, y'all, to see for yourself. That is how psyched they are to help you level up. Enter code STRUGGLE20 at checkout for 20% off your first order. That's awesome. Chalk up less and climb more with Friction Labs. let's talk about tactics now. Is there an area first and foremost that you've struggled in tactically?
0: Honestly, sport climbing and bouldering, I am so bad at resting. I am so bad. And that's why I go out with partners who are good at sport climbing and bouldering because they'll tell me like, no, I'm not bullying you for another 40 minutes or so. Because like, you'll see me out there like trying something at my limit, just shotgunning over and over again until I'm like, (laughs) done like you know I'll be like two hours in and I can't even get off the you know make it past the second bolt because I'm like I'm just so bad at that I'm so bad at resting and so bad at taking time because a lot of times I'm cramming climbing into such small sections of my life that I you know I try to make the most out of it but I'm getting a lot better at that but I would say that's where I really struggle at just sitting at the bottom of a route just waiting
1: yeah well I share that with you and I think because like those of us who are time constrained we either want to try to get it in or like for me, if it's been a while since I've been able to get out on rock, I'm just like a puppy dog. And I just like, I just keep jumping on, you know, jumping on, jumping on, jumping on. And then all of a sudden I can't close my hands and I've completely shot the whole weekend. So I I like using, I like that beta there of communicating with partners to try to help us hold ourselves to a little bit more of a chill in between goes. Uh, Beyond that, when you're looking at These speed climbs or these big wall climbs, uh, I, I, I feel like in some of the conversations that I've had, tactics can be a huge difference maker. And a climb may be well within your ability to pull the individual moves, but the planning, the gear, the timing, the efficiencies with belays or these kinds of things that can have a massive impact on the success of a climb and of an objective. What, what has stood out to you, you know, not being able to climb 5'10 and just wanting to get on the diamond to doing nose in a day? What has stood out to you tactically as being maybe the biggest lessons?
0: Yeah, I mean, nose in a day is all about tactics. I think, honestly, a lot of these big wall climbs, like the tactics are super important. And that's something I didn't know when I got into climbing. And I mean, I didn't even know where to look for that information. Like I knew all the basics of, you know, someone leads, builds an anchor, someone follows. But until I, you know, spent more time climbing, spent more time big wall and spent more time trad climbing. And especially really in the past couple of years, when I started doing a lot more speed climbing, like things get easier the faster you do them. You know, if you're spending less time at the top of a belay, pulling up like an 80 meter rope, like you're more recovered and you're more ready to go for the next pitch. Um, Mm -hmm. And then obviously, like if you get into simul climbing where you're not stopping and all of a sudden you're like, you're doing less extraneous movements. A lot of these bigger routes, like the secret isn't just like get stronger, be able to do it. The secret is get really good at your systems, dial them down, figure out what like the best people who are doing that route, what they are doing. And as long as it's within your safety limit, Because, you know, all of the tactics aren't the safest things in the world, but that makes the routes easier. I mean, the easiest example I have is I talked about this a few times with the naked edge. That's a route that I think there's three approach pitches and then it's six pitches of climbing. And for most people that takes five or six hours their first time. And for most people that takes that long, it takes, maybe they get it down a little faster as they know the moves, but like, it's still a full to half day out route And there's a big community of us in Boulder who will do it, like I said, before work, within an hour. And that all comes down to tactics, like you're putting your harness on at your car, you're putting the gear in the right order that you're going to climb it in. Sometimes you're putting your shoes on before you even do the approach pitches just to keep things going efficiently. And honestly, a lot of that I got from, I climbed up Brad a little bit before, well, a few years ago. Brad Govray. And yeah, and he was all about like, he would bring every piece of gear he needed and not a single gear more or piece more. And that was when I was like, no matter what, I'm bringing a double rack on every pitch. And so like just following him up a lot of things, like he would literally not even have an extra carabiner on his harness when he was doing routes that were actually anything hard for him, easy for him, anything. And so like taking that and putting that to longer routes really does help. Like if you're not carrying extra five pounds of gear, things are a lot smoother not only because you're lighter, but also because you don't have to fumble with 20 carabiners on your harness.
1: Where does the calculation come in with regard to safety and and where you're willing to push that? Brad, I think famously uh, was willing to push, you know, the envelope a little bit on some of that. Speed climbing in general is kind of known for that simulclining, these kinds of things. It's a, It tends to be a calculation between partners on how light are we going to go and how few pieces are we going to place in between anchors and these kinds of things. How has your view of that evolved and, and how have you even learned uh, a lot of those tactics when it comes to how fast how light
0: yeah i mean it's a big difference like routes that you have dialed um you're going to go up with a lot less you know where all the gear is maybe i bring an extra carabiner here, here or there to clip some fixed gear but like you have dialed and part and if you your climate partners that you are very familiar with and comfortable with it's just, it's a completely different thing. It's like rehearsing a sport move. You're not going to do an extra move or a sport climb or a boulder. You're not going to do extra moves if you don't have to. When it's on that's a bit different. And it kind of goes down to like the grade you're climbing from the topo as well as like how hard things are feeling. But I, I mean, I go quite a bit heavier when it's things that I don't know when it's the unknown. And I'm not typically trying to climb like climb at my limit Grade wise or speed wise, when it's unknown. You mentioned Brad. What other mentors in the
1: climbing world uh, have you spent time with or do you continue to spend time with that have helped you to dial in these tactics, especially for these big wall objectives?
0: Kind of. I know you did I, Moonlight Butchers with James, I think, right? James Lucas? I actually climbed with this woman named Kate Kelligan, but James wanted to tag along and he wanted to take pictures and it was awesome. It was actually a really fun experience. So, like, we were climbing so up the wall. And we had actually climbed with James a couple months before that. Like, I've known James for a few years, but he had wanted to take pictures on something else. And we had climbed with James. And he was, like, giving us all the tactics. He was like, why is the leader bringing all the extra gear? Why is the leader doing all of these things? And, like, honestly, up until that point, I hadn't climbed anything that, I mean, yeah, I had like, Moonlight was probably one of the hardest things I had done at that point. And so, before then, like, yeah, I sure. was climbing routes that were mostly easy stuff. Maybe there's a pitch of 512 or 511 here, but I'm talking about longer routes. And, but we had climbed something on Mount Evans where there was a 12C pitch followed by a 12A pitch, and they were both really physically, physical and really demanding. And, you know, he's like, all right, I don't want to like take pictures of you guys failing on this thing. So, like, all right, you're going to give all your extra stuff to Kate. And then you'll be able to send it and like all that stuff. Like those are things that I didn't even think about back then. It's like, Oh, what's a couple extra cams. What's a couple extra uh, quick draws, you know, on my harness, but all of those things, just seeing someone who's put so much time and effort into sending like I think sending free rider, right. That was a multi-year process for him. Like getting all of those quick tips and like the clip notes of how to, how to succeed is always super, super helpful. And I mean, that's one thing I just, I take a little bit from a lot of people I climb with. There's a lot of people in Eldo who are climbing at a super high level, like local people that a lot of people haven't heard from. And they're very specialized in certain types of climbing, like the speed climbing, the red point trad climb, or not the red point, the head point trad climbing. But then also like I spend time with Nina, who's a great boulderer and a great sport climber. And so like I learned sport climbing tactics. I mean, we can go into the ice climbing we haven't talked about that, but I have a few ice climbing friends that I'll go with them because they're so dialed in the ice climbing. And I feel like that's the way to kind of improve. And I think all the different styles of climbing, there's like things that you can learn that you can apply to other styles of climbing, right? Like I can learn how to climb a crux pitch by sport climbing tactics. Maybe I need to rest a little bit, but I also can like all the stuff I do with the efficiency with a big wall and whatnot, I can bring that to the sport crag and like, I mean like the project i'm doing now the 15 meter route why do i need to bring anything longer than a gym rope and then i'm less tired when i get to the base and then i can climb better on the route you know what i mean
1: we've danced around some of this stuff but i really want to like zero in on mental game because you've put yourself in some pretty extreme situations and some exposure we've talked about some fears and this kind of thing so Put yourself maybe in your earlier climbing days or perhaps even currently in in, through the lens of the mental game. What has been a struggle there?
0: we talked a little bit about like, I struggle with motivation to go sport climbing and like mentally, it's really taxing for me to try to just go try hard on things. It's a lot easier for me to go for it is what it is, but like to go speed climbing. Yes, it's a little less safe, but to me, it feels safer because I know all the moves. Everything's dialed. There's not really a fear of failure. There's not really a fear of falling. Maybe there should be more of, but it's gone and I can just enjoy the experience. But when you go, as soon right. as I start going and trying hard things, right? Okay, actually a lot of times I'm scared of falling, right? Like, because I'm always climbing these things where I shouldn't fall and I know I'm not gonna fall that I'm climbing in one mode and then I'm going to sport climbing. I'm like, oh, okay, I can try as hard as I want and I can fall and it's 100% okay. And so it takes me a while to like switch that mindset, but then it's like, okay, I can't do this move. I'm trying so hard and I can't do this move. I'm just can't, I'm just going to waste all my like five hours of climbing a week I have or whatever it is trying this one move that I can't do. And so that was just like a waste of time and I was failing again. So I think that's what I struggle with is like, I'd rather go climbing and not be afraid. Yeah. Like I'd rather just go climbing and enjoy the experience. And so it's kind of a struggle when you're trying to progress.
1: Well, when you are faced with the, that fear, and I want to loop back to motivation because I think that's that's some fertile ground here, and and not a topic that comes up often. But, but just staying along the lines of fear, certainly you've put yourself into positions where you have come face to face with some big fears, epiking on a big wall, or pushing yourself to your limit on some of these you know really long and, and difficult trad routes. Everest, of course, is its own separate thing when when you've got. Uh, loved ones that you're leaving behind for quite some time to go try an objective that uh, has claimed many lives. So when you are looking at fear of falling or
0: those risk fears,
1: is there anything that you do to
0: help yourself manage that? I mean, it's kind of a spectrum, I would say. It's kind of, and it's really like the spectrum. It's like the stuff in the middle is the stuff that I have the hardest time with, right? Like I'm above a bolt. I know it's a hundred percent safe, but you know what? I'm just gonna down climb a move and take because I'm not sending anyways. When I could have at least got the next move, you know what I mean? Like that's like the stuff in the middle where like I'm I'm like over here talking to myself. It's like way too much logic, and then I'm like, oh, I'm just gonna take, so I'm not scared. Maybe I'll like clip in and clip up or whatever. That's nice, and like it's super pleasant. And that's the part that I feel like is actually like the biggest struggle is trying to work through that, and like make improving and climbing more efficient. But I would say in things like when it's like super dangerous or like I'm run out or like, that's just part of the pitch. Usually it's on easier terrain or things, or just like a storms coming in. A lot of times I like, I, I tend to focus more and I tend to just focus on what I need to do to get myself to stay safe, to get myself out of there. And usually I don't want to say this as I don't put myself in, I try to avoid those situations as much as possible. But usually I climb really well in that scenario and I'm just so focused and I'm so zoned in that I, you know, do the best thing I can to make myself safe. You know, like I'm trying to think, come up with an example and like the only example I have is when we were, it was actually on Everest and we were going to the icefall, which is like a jungle gym of climbing. Like you're going up ladders, you're going down, downstairs, You're on a fixed rope. It's, I mean, it's not really like climbing. It's like a Via Ferretta, basically. That's just like dangerous. And we heard this really loud rumbling in the background. And our head Sherpa was with us and he looked at us and he was like, I don't think that's good. So we kind of have to pick up the pace. And it was, for me, it was like, okay, I'm done like enjoying the environment and looking around. I am going to like focus on my breathing and I'm going to power out, hike and focus. And I mean... I think the first time from that point, it took us like three, three ish hours to get to camp one. And like, as soon as that happened, it was like 45 minutes. And I, when I got to camp one, I was still feeling good because I wasn't wasting all of this time and energy, like looking around, enjoying the place, doing all these things. And that was just because it was like real danger. And what we learned a few days later is that like a part of the ice fall, like basically it's just a trail that meanders through a bunch of ice. But basically, an apartment-sized piece of ice fell down on the trail. And so there was like 300 feet of this trail that was no longer passable. And that's what happened when we heard that. And so we wanted to get out of there, you know, knowing that, like, that could be dangerous. But that's just one thing that that's another, let's say, like, superpower climate I've had is that when, like, things are truly dangerous, I'm really able to focus on what's important and try to shut ev- everything else out. First of all, that's freaking terrifying. But also
1: that that you've recognized that when things get serious. When things get tense, you can rise to the occasion and focus and get it done rather than become paralyzed and gripped and potentially fall behind or make mistakes. What a great thing to recognize in yourself and something that a lot of us, I think, can aspire to. And it comes with experience and it comes with climbing with people who are experienced at that. Is there anything that you do personally to
0: kind of get in that zone? All right. So I was, I was at the fins a couple weeks ago with James and I was trying something that was hard for me. And as I'm getting ready to go, I'm putting my shoes on, putting my chalk bag, you know, tying in and James starts counting. And I'm like, why are you counting? He's like, oh, because every time you try something hard, do you like count before you pull on? I guess I do that, but I don't even know I do that. I'm like one, two, three, like, and he's like, no, you do it every single time. <laughs> I was like, oh, I didn't. So I guess I do that, but I didn't know I'd do that. I do not really think I have a ritual other than putting my shoes and tying up or tying in. So shifting to our last chapter here, Eddie, on purpose and, and
1: passion, things that, that you're psyched on outside of your own climbing. There's a lot to talk about here, uh, but I, I kind of want to keep it on climbing just for a second because we were talking a little bit about Everest there and going through the icefall, but we, we really haven't um, dived into Everest in uh, a big way. And I'd like to hear more because not only from a climbing perspective, but also just from a personal perspective, what you and the team did there to come up with, create, fund, and ultimately pull off this incredible accomplishment uh, is really impressive. And also I imagine impacts your life in ways that maybe you wouldn't even expect going in. So I'm curious,
0: you know, maybe how it impacted you as a climber, but also beyond that? Everest was kind of its own thing. I mean, Everest, me doing Everest, I would say like fundamentally changed my outlook on climbing, if that makes sense. But the actual climbing of Everest hasn't really affected my climbing. I mean, I came back a lot weaker. I hadn't rock climbed in probably the longest break that I've had since I've started rock climbing. But so it definitely changed some things. But I definitely think it fundamentally changed like my outlook on climbing. And if I can expand a little bit upon that, we've touched on a lot of different things. And like track and field used to be the most passionate thing. I, like I was so passionate about track and field. I spent a lot of time running. And when I decided not to do it anymore, I kind of took that as something where I'm gonna share that with kids and I'm going to promote joy with kids and I'm gonna motivate them and I'm going to help them find areas of their life that they can be successful. Kids don't like to run. That's been a punishment for the beginning of, ever since they played sports. But- <laughs> totally. The thing is like through track, right? Like I motivate them. I help them find success and that's something that like they can hopefully take on in their life. And I mean, when I came to climbing, like that's why I actually liked climbing because there was like, I met people, I found success. And like every single route you do, you're successful, right? You're not just training and training and training to not be successful. So when I left track and field, I went to climbing because of that success. And climbing was something that I, like I said, I found joy. It was a good outlet for all the other stresses in life, right? Like, especially when I'm like high up on a wall, I don't have to deal with any of the normal day-to-day. I don't have to deal with like the cops behind me. Like, oh man, am I going to get pulled over right now? Or work or anything like that. And so that was one thing that I loved about climbing. But the other thing is like, I didn't really spend a lot of time talking about climbing or sharing climbing with anyone, not even my students outside of just like, the friends that I go climbing with. Right. And so what was cool is through the whole Everest experience and meeting the other black climbers on the team, as well as talking to brands and trying to get our trip funded. Like I learned that the experience that I have in climbing, is not the same experience everybody else has in climbing. And that like those, I would say, I mean, most of climbing is good. Like I said, most of climbing is positive and joyful, but there is some negative experiences that I have that other people haven't had. And I mean, other people have, may have had those, but I just haven't spent a lot of time talking about those or just really, honestly, like being a connoisseur of like greater, the greater climate community outside of just my family and friends. And so through Everest, like I learned that, like some of my stories do have meaning and some of like the climate objectives that have meaning to other people and talking about them inspires them and they get motivated to do those. And so, would say like through this whole Everest journey, that was something that I learned a lot about myself and like has changed like, again, my outlook on climbing, right? Like I can go have this amazing experience and that can be for me and I can talk about it with my friends or I can have this amazing experience and I can write a story about it and I can talk to people about it and they can get stoked and they can decide like, oh man, I wanna start climbing or I wanna go pick a goal and I wanna go after it. And so that's what's, that's the really cool part about Everest as well as just honestly to really get to know the people who live there. Like that was, I mean, that was more than anything. Like one big takeaway that I had from actually being on the mountain is getting to really get to intimately know the Sherpa people and spend so much time with them.
1: That's beautiful, man. Well, I, I appreciate you sharing those perspectives. There's a few things to unpack here. So I <laughs> want to um, spend time on, on a, a couple different things that you touched on. First, this, um, notion that your experience maybe isn't the same as other uh, people's experience when it comes to the sport, the climbing, the community. And I believe you're referencing or alluding to race and maybe what a black person's experience is or a black kid who maybe wants to climb but only sees a bunch of white people at the gym and this kind of thing. Am I contextualizing that correctly? Was that what you were yeah. uh, alluding to
0: well, there? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if you wouldn't mind speaking to that for a little bit, um. I mean, I definitely think it's a more diverse place than it was when I started climbing, and I think that there's more awareness around how the lack of diversity in climbing, because honestly, like, I think a lot of people don't really notice, right? I mean, if you've if you're someone and you grew up in this neighborhood, you've climbed at this place your whole life, and you've had these same type of people around you, you're not really going to notice that there are a lack of this type of person or this type of person out there. At least I don't think you would, maybe you would. I I can't speak for other people's experiences, but I think that nowadays, like there is just through the brands and mentorship programs, different things like our Full Circle Everest climb, there is a lot more awareness about that. And so I think that that helps change it. But I mean, the reality is there's a long way to go in terms of like the diversity issue in climbing. And I mean, climbing is not that much different than the rest of our country. You know, like I grew up in a pretty small, well, I grew up in a lot of places, but I grew up in a pretty small town in Minnesota where, I mean, the only thing people knew about black people was what they saw in the movies or like the Vikings. Like I kid you not Vikings meaning the football team, not the Norwegians, but right. (laughs) But like, they didn't know, like they honestly had no interactions with people that were different from them. And so it was like hard to, it was almost really hard to blame people when they were like, why aren't you like good at, I, I don't know. I'm trying to come up with one of the many stereotypes that, that I got, but like, I mean, I was a pretty good basketball player in high school. And this is like kind of a weird story. I was a pretty good basketball player in high school, but at the same time, basketball was something that my mom never pushed me to because for her growing up, it was all about education in the future. But like when I moved there, my white teacher was like, Oh, you're definitely going to be a good basketball player. You're a black kid. You're kind of tall and push me that direction. And like wow. I did actually benefit from that. But also, you can kind of see where that's a weird misconception that forced me into that lane. And so, then when you look at climbing specifically, I came to see you. I actually didn't know what climbing was when I came to see you in Colorado for the first time. I lived here for four years and I really didn't know what climbing was outside of like big mountains and things that you've heard about, like going to Everest and stuff like that. Like, it's kind of funny sure. that I climbed Everest, but that's, I didn't know anything about Everest back or anything but Everest back then. And I lived in Boulder, right. which is like, there's a lot of climbing here. And I also had friends that climbed or like people that like I knew and like are great people. And they never offered or asked me to climb because like talking to them later, like, oh, I just didn't think you would like it. You know, maybe it was just because of my personality or what it was, but... Not even extending that offer was just a lot of kind of like internalized prejudices that you have, you know? Sure. Where it wasn't on the front of their mind. And so, like, that's the biggest thing that I say, like, how us as individuals can help kind of change the culture is, you know, invite people outside of your bubble because, like, our bubbles are pretty small and a lot of times they're very homogenous when people that look like us and it's really hard to make people feel welcome and into those spaces. Am I, go- am I going on this tangent too long? I love this. Okay. No, keep going. It's wonderful. Even within climbing, I mean, I, when I started climbing, and honestly, up until two years ago, I didn't know a lot of other black people that did climb. The very few that I've seen, like on media here or there, or like I didn't have Instagram before COVID. So I didn't, wasn't seeing anything that way. But the very few people I did see, they were in gyms or pushed to go to gyms. And if they weren't just in gyms, they were bouldering. And then maybe a few, you know, I saw a few pictures here or there of sport climbing. But when you get to like trad climbing and big wall climbing, like I, I only know, a, now I know a couple other black people who are even like doing things like this. And so if me as a black person, I'm like, I only know a couple people who are out here doing these type of things. As a white person, it's like almost hard to blame them for me feeling like I'm going up to a crag and I guess I'm getting like prejudged as like, Oh, you should let me pass you. Oh, are you sure you want to get on this route? Does this make sense? And like these little microaggressions that I get a lot of the time I'm kind of trailing. it's hard to really organize these thoughts. Well, no, I mean, well,
1: I appreciate it. I appreciate you attempting to organize thoughts. I mean, we're trying to unpack like inherent bias and prejudice and racism in a sport in the the context of a 10 minute podcast conversation. So don't worry about it. Like we don't have to uh, solve all the world's problems right now. But just you sharing your experience, I think, is impactful for me to hear and others to hear because you are an incredibly accomplished climber. Big wall climber, speed climber, alpinist, these kinds of things. And still your experience at the crag is one of feeling a little less welcomed or judged. These microaggressions, as you're saying. So understanding all of that, how do we as a sport help to make climbing a more diverse, more equitable sport for all who are interested in, in doing this?
0: I mean, I think it's just providing access and providing like that knowledge of the sport, right? I mean, obviously, like, there's more science to training, there's more literature, there's more things out there, There, there's so, like, if you want to learn how to tie a knot, or you want to learn how to tie in, there's so many different resources you can use, but it's also really hard to get the curated resources, like, what you need to know, what you don't need to know, do you need a quad, or do you not need a quad, you know what I mean, all these random things, so it's definitely, like, I mean, don't ask Chris Caloose that question. He will go off on a quad rant for about an hour, but <laughs> oh, man, I digress. Go ahead. But I mean, I think the biggest thing is like those invitations, those direct invitations, those bringing people out, spending time with people outside your bubble and sharing those information. And I know there's like, there's this weird thing where it's like, okay, you're spraying and giving me too much beta, or you're just like trying to help and give information. I think just being really clear in those conversations and helping people because like i said i wouldn't be where i am in climbing if i didn't climb with people who are different from me if i didn't learn from people who are different from me and i'm definitely a better climber for it but also i have like privilege that i know a lot of people in my community don't have and i can't say that my whole life it felt like that but like i lived in places where i lived with people who are a lot different from me i lived in very rural white minnesota i lived on the native American Reservation. I went to you who basically, if you were black, you either were an athlete or you weren't a student at the school. Mm-hmm. And that's changed a little bit since I went there. But like I've been in these places where I've been marginalized that I've kind of learned how to deal with that very well. And that's why, it's, I mean, it wasn't a big deal for me to just like ask like people I know, like, Hey, can you take me out climbing? Hey, do you want to go try this route with me? And just like here or there, you like learn a little bit. I hope that helps.
1: (laughs) It really does. I think we we can make great strides just making personal connections in that way and being open-minded and inviting people out. Climbing's awesome, you know? Like, everybody should climb. So as long as we understand that we don't need to be protective of our little bubbles, which sometimes we get, it's human nature, but to try to reach beyond, I think that's really important context to have. And Eddie, I appreciate you opening up on it. Yeah. What an absolute joy for me just to, to feed on your stoke for a little bit. Um, it's been such a pleasure, man. Thank you so much and, and good luck with the school year and also all of your own climbing objectives that are going to be coming up. Awesome. Thank you. And if I can ever make it out your way, I might beg you to take me up, the naked edge there it's going to take a little bit longer than 90 minutes we could probably do it in under three hours i bet and that wraps up an all-around fantastic combo with a fantastic all-arounder eddie taylor what did you all think of this one i loved it you can let us know find us on ig at allday eddie and at the stroke climbing show man i just really loved how stoked eddie is to get out into nature and have adventures i've been so focused on pushing my red point up this season This chat here was really a nice reminder to make sure that I'm logging a good amount of fun mileage as well. Take my mind off of the pressures to send and just get out and move over rock. And and not just because it's fun, by the way, but as Eddie shared, repeating climbs will build fitness and efficiency. And both of those elements are key to when we're taking on our limit projects. Now, for patrons and subscribers, your edit has some cool bonus content with Eddie at the end here. So listen through this wrap up. And after the music plays at the end, that bonus content will begin. Huge thanks and appreciation to our show sponsors who have brought you this episode at zero cost. How great is that? Fizzy Vantage, the Kaya Climb app, Friction Labs, and the Crimped app. They're helping to make this show possible, and they're also offering you some pretty sweet discounts. So check the show notes, give them some love, and take your training and performance to the next level. All right, that clips the anchors on this episode. Thank you so much as always for tuning in. If you'd like to support me as I keep the content flowing here, and if you'd like to score some immediate access to more than 20 hours of content to help you level up your training and your climbing, check out the show's Patreon page or become an Apple subscriber wherever you listen. There's all kinds of amazing perks over here, you guys, including pro clinics and bonus content from the likes of Chris Sharma, Alex Honnold, Ravioli Biceps, Alex Johnson, Alison Vest, Dr. Tyler Nelson, and so many more. Swing on over to patreon.com slash the struggle climbing show to check out the levels that we got there. Thank you. I love you. Did you know that The Struggle is carbon neutral in partnership with the Honold Foundation? Well, I hope you did. They're doing amazing work to bring clean energy to communities around the world. Check out their latest grant recipients over at honoldfoundation.org. It is such inspiring stuff. Toss them some love if you can. They're doing great, great work. And lastly, The Struggle is a proud member of the Plugtone Audio Collective, a diverse group of the best, most impactful podcasts in the outdoor industry. This show was produced and hosted by me, Ryan Devlin. I hope your training and climbing are going great. I hope you're struggling because the struggle makes us stronger. I sure am struggling. And it's uh, it's good to be on this ride with you guys. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you soon.